Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It was another big weekend of protests in Hong Kong. An estimated 1.7 million people took to the streets over the weekend, defying a police order not to protest. It was about a quarter of the population of all of Hong Kong went into the streets last weekend and demonstrated peacefully. With me to talk about the protests is Ting Guo, an assistant professor of gender studies and history at the University of Hong Kong. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. You know, I wonder about the reaction to this weekend's protests. We've been seeing a lot Mm -hmm. of articles in the press about the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, being in China and being massed in China and doing uh, doing doing demonstrations. Um, What what do you think of what was that sending a signal? How did you how do people there read that? In terms of signal, kind of a, a demonstration of sort, but I think it's very important not to normalize this kind of military intervention from China because when we don't know if it's going to happen, to normalize this from media will really convenience China and also that might really reduce the the sense of sympathy, empathy from people from China and people from around the world as well. So I think it's very important not to kind of read too much into this because the, the PLA, uh, the army presence, have always been there near Hong Kong and Hong Kong as well. Uh, from China's point of view, it seems to have three choices, and one of them would be this remote chance of using force. The other one would be to do nothing and just wait for this to peter out. And the other is to count on Carrie Lam to uh, maybe change her strategy and, and get out of it herself. Does it look like Carrie Lam can change her strategy and get out of this herself? It's hard to say because we're still waiting for Beijing to appoint the, the next leader. Universal suffrage was one of the things people are asking for, but it's not granted by Beijing. So uh, we don't know if Carrie Lam and her cabinet essentially will actively respond to the people's requests, and so far they have not. And from Beijing's side, there's an article by Sebastian Veig, a scholar of Hong Kong based in Paris, and his assessment that, and as we have seen as well, that Beijing will let Hong Kong, the uh, really fragments of the protest, the, the incidents of the protest itself, to eat itself out. So Beijing will not even need to intervene uh, too much by force or by other other means. So this it seems to be a pattern from earlier, from the umbrella movement as well. So uh, is China doing more to crack down in economic ways and trying to bring economic pressure on Hong Kong? It'll be difficult because the reason why Hong Kong is so different and so significant is that Hong Kong is a, uh, a world financial center, a lot of financial economic happenings in Hong Kong, and they're not determined by China, China alone. And it'll be difficult for China to, you know, crack down the Hong Kong in terms of economic perspective. But China's definitely trying to kind of go for other means. For instance, the ways in which the accident at the airport uh, a few weeks ago, how that played out in mainland social media, and also we see overtly patriotic overseas Chinese students fighting for the sacredness of Chinese territory in uh, Australia, in Canada, the U.S., 
think that this is one of the ways that the China's trying to uh, wing over this Hong Kong case. I also noticed they were taking out ads in Facebook that state-owned media were taking out some kind of uh, ham-fisted ads. They seem awkward to say the protesters are like ISIS. That's kind of strange, but, (laughs) but, but they're doing it. Yes, yes. And some of the official media uh, propaganda in China, uh, People's Daily, Global Times and Xinhua News, we see words such as Hong Kong independence, terrorist even. So, you know, these are kind of some of some of the words that China chooses to use, the official usage of the definition of the Hong Kong protests. Today, we also see this reaction from Twitter and Facebook official media intervention from from Beijing uh, against Hong Kong protests. I'm talking with Ting Guo, Assistant Professor of Gender Studies and History at the University of Hong Kong, and we're talking about uh, the protests which continue in Hong Kong. The last weekend was a quarter of the population on the streets. What was it like? Well, uh, because I live on Hong Kong Island, so many of the protests, even even if I've I'm not actively taking part. You know, I, I, I live around these protests. Uh, it's on a daily basis. You don't feel that. Uh, but because I work at university and uh, when you work on campus, you do feel this kind of tension uh, among students, especially between mainland students and Hong Kong students. Local um, On the Lenin Wall, local students would you know, post things cheering for Hong Kong protests and mainland students were kind of counter post things against that. So you do feel the sense of tension. But most protests are scheduled and most uh, mostly very peaceful and very organized. So if someone who lives in Hong Kong who does not wish to join the protests, uh, they do have a choice to live on the life as, as, as they do. I was talking with someone uh, recently about the protests in Hong Kong, and they were saying that the protesters want to communicate in situations like the airport with people who are going back to the mainland and make their case with mainlanders uh, about what they're doing and yes. why it's right. Yeah. Is, what does that look like? Does that does that because it sounds like from your interactions with the students that it's not really working out that 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 they don't see eye to eye. Yeah, it's it's really difficult. Uh, the the Hong Kong protesters they all they all, uh, also tried at the um, uh, Kowloon as well, one of the shopping areas. The mainland uh, tourists often go, uh, but it's really difficult because there is a very long history of tension between mainlanders and local Hong Kongers, Hong Kong Chinese. It's been many years, and really both mainlanders and Hong Kongers are victims of the system that have made life difficult for many. For the mainlanders who have to travel to Hong Kong to buy things, many things are life essentials like milk powders, etc. They they come here because they think products here are safer, but that definitely overwhelms everyday life of Hong Kongers. So really both mainlanders and Hong Kongers are the victims of structural uh, issues, structural uh, flaws. So there's a very long history of that. And it's very difficult, especially now considering the tension to have the dialogue, because the both government in Beijing and government in Hong Kong, the governments are not providing the kind of space for di- for dialogue. 
and this kind of tension or even clashes, as we see from even the students' protests in Australia or in Canada, the overseas students from both sides. Even from that, we can see how difficult it is to have the dialogue, how and how, how important it is to have the space, because it will really take generations to heal the kind of uh, historical differences. What what is the best case scenario outcome in your mind here? Well, the the really the most ideal way would for the is for the government to respond to the five demands of the protest, or, or just for the government really to respond to to its people, for the people who have been waiting uh, from June to now. Because one thing is clear that we do see the absence of government government actors who have the resources to dialogue, to engage with, and to respond to to the people, basically. And uh, many things can only be addressed by the officials, by the government in, in Hong Kong. I wanted to ask a question about um, how China treats some of the other places in China, if it's Tibet or Xinjiang, where um, the People's Armed Police are sometimes used to repress protests and uh, things of that nature. Do they feel like the security response that China's had in those places, Tibet and Xinjiang, would come to Hong Kong? There are different suspicions. I think last year there was an article in South China Morning Post about the anti-riot police of Hong Kong. Uh, They were invited to study the strategies used in Xinjiang. And that was something that was last year uh, that was kind of sometimes mentioned this time as a precaution. And this time there was also uh, discussions among local Hong Kongers about whether the kind of police brutality that we have witnessed in Hong Kong, that that might have been the result of some of the anti-riot police, that they are not local Hong Kong police, because during the umbrella movement, one thing that was really impressive and, and many remember is that the way that the police, Hong Kong police cleared out the occupied sites that was really peaceful uh, and polite, respectful even. So this time, because of the contrast from last time, so there were, you know, suspicions of who are these uh, or what changed and who are really these people who are uh, police governing Hong Kong. Do you think people in Hong Kong expect more from, more support from the global community and outside countries, the the United yes, States. Absolutely, yeah, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, there's just, uh, I think this is the second time around now. Uh, maybe last month, I think we have seen in major global media, in major newspapers, uh, Hong Kongers, just ordinary people in Hong Kong, they crowdsourced funding and they put in ads in all these major newspapers around the world. Uh, appealing to international community for support, for solidarity, and they're doing this again. This is something really quite amazing and incredible. Ordinary people giving out money just to appeal to international community with the hope that the government in the US, in the UK, uh, in Canada, in the free world will, you know, uh, step in or speak to the Chinese government or give some kind of pressure or at least to notice the case in Hong Kong with more attention. A lot of uh, policymakers in the U.S. seem to think that it might be counterproductive to speak out about 
uh, Hong Kong because it would give the Chinese government yeah. a propaganda tool, and they're already using, you know, cartoons yes. with got people yes. with American flags, and and you yeah. just you just play into China's hand if you speak out too much and can't get anything done. Yes, yeah, yeah. Because foreign intervention into China's domestic business that has been uh, really a tagline of you know the uh, kind of the the Chinese government's response. But having said that, that does not mean that the official dialogue between state heads can't be, be really counterproductive because we don't know that yet. The China's reaction or China's strategy is one thing, but. At the same time, we also notice uh, also these days a lot of uh, international luxury brands are apologizing to China for hurting the feelings of the Chinese people. So yep. we also see this how, you know, the there's on one hand lacking of solidarity from the Chinese community, but also kind of another type of, in quote, solidarity of neoliberalism, of global capitalism. And that's something that the people of Hong Kong are kind of disappointed with. Tingguo is Assistant Professor of Gender Studies and History at the University of Hong Kong. Thanks for joining us and talking about the continuing protests in Hong Kong. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Coming up after the break, a 13-year-old journalist from the West Bank. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Jana Jihad is on a tour of the U.S. She's a 13-year-old Palestinian journalist from the small village of Nabi Saleh in the West Bank. It's been quite a trip so far. She visited Congress and Representative Rashida Tlaib. Jana interviewed the mayor of Patterson, Andre Saya, the first Arab-American mayor in New Jersey. She's been on TV with Democracy Now! And she's here in our studios with us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Tell me about your village. Most people uh, probably haven't heard of Nabi Saleh and can't have any mental picture of it. So my village, Nabi Saleh, is in the West Bank, um, right outside of um, the city, Ramallah. And Nabi Saleh is a very, very, very small village uh, made of only about 550 people. Um, Nabi Saleh, it's beautiful. We have a lot of, like old uh, houses, a lot of old people, but also we have an illegal Israeli Jewish-only settlement that was built on the land of Nabi Saleh in 1976, and also we have two checkpoints on the entrance of my village. How did you get involved in journalism? Why did you want to become somebody who was uh, recording things and, and putting it out there? I started journalism when I was seven years old when I realized that there were not enough journalists to cover things that happened in Nabi Saleh. Uh, like when my friend Mustafa was killed, my uncle Rishi was killed, a lot of things were happening in the world didn't know how we felt. As Palestinian children living under this Israeli military occupation, how we felt when we lose somebody we love, when we get arrested, when we get injured. So I wanted to be the voice of those feelings and the voice of those children who are suffering every day. Now, you mentioned the family members who've been killed and hurt in the Israeli occupation. Your family is very active. They're an mm -hmm. activist family. Um, a lot of people will know your 
a cousin. Her name is Ahed Tamimi, and she became very well known when she slapped an Israeli soldier and went to prison. How do you describe what your family is doing and, and the kind of activism they do? So my village, as I said, is a very small village, and we're all one family, the Tamimi family, so uh, we all have the last name. Also, there are a lot of activists there because we started uh, having a weekly demonstration from December 2009 against the settlement, against occupation, against colonization. And we just held flags and sang songs. And we had women, children leading the demonstration. It was very nice, but a lot of people, as you said, were getting killed. A lot of people were getting injured. And also, we had a lot of activists like my cousin, we had other activists who were not highlighted, but that doesn't mean we, ha- we don't have a lot of activists. And uh, we were trying to send our voices as much as we can because it's very important. And how do you describe the politics of your family? Because uh, if you read something in the Israeli press, they'll say, well, they're conning their children into doing things, to becoming journalists, to slapping Israeli soldiers, to doing this and that. Is there um, kind of a coercive aspect to this whole thing? Um, of course not, because uh, me as a child living under this Israeli military occupation, even if I'm in my house doing nothing, I am a target for this occupation. Even if I'm in my house, they can come and raid my house at any time, arrest me for doing nothing. And for just sometimes, even when I'm playing on the street, they would come and start shooting at us because of us playing. So if we did nothing, what would be the result? So us as children, we chose to be part of this activism because we believe that we can do something. And even being in our houses... We are not in a safe place. Our parents cannot protect us because they even can get arrested any time. Um, so we decided to go on, like, on our weekly demonstrations. We decided to resist in our own ways. Either it's journalism, either it's singing, either it's drawing, e- either it's poetry. So, yeah. Now, would you say your family has a political affiliation? Do they support a political party? Do they support an idea about what the future should be? What do you mean the future? So you mean like the solution? Two state, one state? What's the political party? Okay. I'm going to speak for me personally because it's not right to speak for others that way. So personally, I believe that the two-state solution is 100% dead because where are the Israeli borders? 68% of the West Bank is illegal um, Jewish-only Israeli sediments. And even the Israeli government, they don't want the two-state solution, so how is that going to happen? I believe in a one-state solution where everyone can live together because, you know, our struggle is not a religious struggle as the Israeli propaganda is trying to show it, but it's a political struggle because Palestine is a homeland for all religions, and even before occupation, all three religions were living together. And um, we are resisting this occupation. I don't have any problem with living with any person who believes in peace, love, equality, and justice. Under one government, one law, all of us get the same laws, and uh, all of us, I mean, get the same rights, and the right of return for the refugees, and yeah. 
Well, yeah, how does that go over? Because it seems like all the Israelis seem to say things like, well, that means the destruction of the state of Israel. That's really bad. That doesn't mean the destruction of the Israeli state. That means that we can live together. What's the new state? Um, the name doesn't matter unless we all live together, unless we all get the same rights. I'm talking with Jana Jahad. She's on a tour of the U.S., and she is a 13-year-old Palestinian journalist. Uh, I wanted to ask about the organization that's bringing you. It's a South African organization that's helping you with the tour. Describe how the tour came about. It's unusual for Palestinians to get into the U.S. these days. Uh, Hanana Shrawi can't get into the U.S. She's been coming for years and seems to be uh, somebody who's you know made it in in the past, but you're here today. Uh, yeah, we have this initiative, which is called Chamsan, Two Sons in Arabic. Um, this initiative was created three years ago to try to create a platform for the Palestinian children to send their stories. We interviewed about 300 child through arts, so we made them draw something and explain it and tried to send their stories to the world. And I'm right now the ambassador of Shamsan. And we had three speaking tours in the past three years, um, two in South Africa, and this year was in the United States of America. And I'm right here trying to also be the voice of those children, trying to speak about the violations of our rights as Palestinian children living under the Israeli military occupation. And you got into the country. You have a U.S. passport. I do. I was born in Florida, in Gainesville, but I'd never lived there. And that doesn't make me any less of a Palestinian. So just <laughs> I didn't live here. I was raised in Palestine. But, yeah, I do have an American passport, which is a bit easier for me to come out of Palestine or travel or get a visa because I don't have to get a visa. But right now I'm accompanied by Nadia. Uh, which is the founder of Shamsan, and uh, I'm not accompanied by my mom, which shows that it's very hard for any Palestinian to get their visa, especially the American visa, and my mom couldn't get it because she has a Palestinian passport. And how do you feel about being in the U.S.? Have you been here before or frequently? Um, That's actually my first speaking tour here in the United States. It's good. I expected more... Uh, more Palestinian support and anti-occupation people. But it's pretty good. We have a lot of people who are supportive of human rights issues. I met with a lot of uh, diverse groups like immigrants with like African-Americans. I met with Arab-Americans, uh, Native Americans and heard about their struggles, which is very connected to our struggle, which is something I personally can relate to and heard about it. And I believe that if you are against the killing of the black children, you have to be against the killing of any child around this world including the Palestinian children, if you're against the children on border, like in cages on the border, you have to be against the detention and the arresting the Palestinian children. So it was very nice meeting with those people and hearing about your guys' struggles. Now, you mentioned you were in South Africa last year. It sounds like it was quite a to-do. You were at the centenary for uh, Nelson Mandela. Yeah, I went to the centenary of Nelson Mandela. I met with um, his widow, Grasha Michelle. I met with a lot of people, uh, with Richard Branson, with some elders, and it was pretty cool. What's the reaction to you, a 13-year-old journalist? What do most people think? Um, Some of the people are, like, very happy that the voice of the Palestinian children is heard by a lot of people, and they think it's... um, 
pretty strange for a child to be a journalist, um, especially that I started when I was seven. But of course, under occupation, there's nothing strange. Uh, what is your favorite part about journalism? You were kind of a social media journalist where mm-hmm. you put your interviews up on social media, you put information up on social media. What's the best part about it? The best part is, like, personally, I usually, my reports are live streams, and, like, I don't edit edit my videos because it's very hard, and I'm just, like, putting it on social media. So it's very clear that that's the truth, and that's what really is happening in Palestine. That's what really is happening in Nabi Saleh. And I love that our message is getting sent, and that's my favorite part about it. Jana Jihad is on a tour of the U.S. She's a 13-year-old Palestinian journalist from Nabi Saleh on the West Bank, and she's here with the organization Shamsan. It means two sons. And for Palestinian children, uh, what's it like? How do you uh, go to school? How do you get around, function? So it's very hard. Um, Maybe you said it, going to school is the most simple thing for any normal child around this world, but it's a struggle for us. Let's talk about it. Personally, I face three checkpoints going to my school, and those Israeli military checkpoints are not usual checkpoints that you just give them your ID and they let go. It's... uh, barrier on the street that blocks you from going to anywhere it just blocks the street with armed soldiers just standing in the street and they would start shooting at you even if you tried passing by so uh, my school is only 25 to 30 minutes far from my house but if those checkpoints were closed which is very often I have to take another way that takes me about two hours and a half to three hours to reach my school and It's not a struggle only for me as a child. It's also a struggle for a lot of people. For example, my grandma who started doing kidney dialysis because of how much tear gas she used to inhale. She has to go to the hospital three days a week and sometimes she can't. A lot of women gave birth on those checkpoints um, in the cars. A lot of patients cannot reach the hospital. Like even in our schools, a lot of schools get raided. Children get arrested from their schools, from their classes. Uh, My school is in a class area where it's always getting raided. Sometimes you cannot open the windows because of how much air gas is getting shot outside. Going back to my um, house, I also face checkpoints in our houses. We cannot concentrate on studying because of, of the rays that are happening outside. Because, you know, just um, trying to study and something is happening outside, you're like, your brain is outside. Did someone get injured? Did someone get arrested or anything? Trying even to play to live our childhood. Like, I am a soccer player. And whenever I want to try to play soccer in the middle of the street with my friends, sometimes the Israeli occupation soldiers, they would come and start shooting gas canisters at us because of us trying to live our childhood, trying to play soccer. And yeah. The tear gas is interesting. I mean, why is there tear gas around a school? Um, Because that's a question you need to ask them, not me. Um, And, like, the Israeli occupation is they are shooting tear gas at us for no reason, I guess. Yeah. And you mentioned your grandmother goes on kidney dialysis because she's inhaled too much tear gas. Yeah, as I said, the raids started after 2009 in my village, and our house is the first house in the village, so we're always targeted. And my grandma lives with us, so 
uh, whenever like tear gas is getting shot, a lot of tear gas canisters broke the windows and came into the houses because they just shoot it randomly at houses and at people. And after a couple of years, my grandma started facing problems in her kidney when we went to the hospital. They said because of how much tear gas she used to inhale. Uh, after that, she had a renal failure, and it was because of that. And right now, she has to go. It's been three years, and she have to go to the hospital three days a week for kidney dialysis. I mentioned that there's the effect on the vulnerable of tear gas is serious, and the young people would be affected too. Of course, even a lot of... Um, newborn babies were uh, killed how much tear gas they inhaled in villages near us. And it's very effective because, you know, tear gas is that it's just a cloud that happens because of a canister. And when you smell it, it's CO2. You cannot breathe in it. And it just hurts, and you're like, you tear up, and it's very hard, and even sticks on your skin. So if you go wash it, it would burn more, and it's just very bad. It's chemical, and yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. You know. I was just watching the Hong Kong protesters get tear gassed, and they were developing all these techniques to go after the tear gas. They put a cone on top of the thing and douse it with water and... Uh, they all wear masks. Uh, do you have those kind of techniques yourself? Um, being born, living under occupation, you have to figure it out. So we have kind of like techniques, you know. Look, being outside is even safer than being in your house. So if there was a gas canister that got shot, you can go and see where the wind is going. So you can go just like to the opposite side. Um, we even sometimes put yogurt on our faces because it really cools it down, but it's still bad. Uh it's uh, kind of an amazing thing to live with, isn't it? Yeah, and even like last year when I was a seventh grader, I um, made a research about those chemical weapons, and it was called the dissection of the Israeli chemical weapons used in the Palestinians. And we tried to figure out um, what's it made of. And yogurt helps, but it's very hard, and it's still very effective and irritates your skin and everything. You're 13 years old, and... Do you feel like you want to stick with journalism? I can't believe I'm asking that. But you don't have to stick with journalism. You can do anything you want. Um, maybe, because I really want to do something. Of course, Palestine would be free um, in a couple of years, like when I graduate and everything. So I would love to be the voice of other children around the world, and I'm going to study political science as my major and gender studies as my minor. Well, it sounds excellent. Uh, John Jahad is on a tour of the U.S. She's a 13-year-old Palestinian journalist from Nabi Saleh on the West Bank, and she's here with the organization Shamsan. It means two sons, and it's a South African organization that's supporting all Palestinian children wherever they are. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the United Fruit Company and the history of labor relations in Latin America. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. 2019 marks 25 years that Worldviews brought you human stories from at home and abroad. We wanted to bring you some selections from our deep archive. In April of 2002, Human Rights Watch issued a major report on child labor in banana lamp plantations in Ecuador. We still get about a quarter of our bananas from Ecuador. Because of the report, one plantation's owner, Alvaro Naboa, fired his child labor workers but continued his efforts to stop workers from organizing. Several workers were shot dead around that same time. Steve Striffler is currently the chair in Latin American Studies and professor of anthropology at the University of New Orleans. He joined us in 2002 to talk about labor organizing in Ecuadorian banana plantations, especially the ones managed by the United Fruit Company. The United Fruit Company was at the center of the controversy that resulted in the U.S. overthrow of the Guatemalan government in 1953. It's known as Chiquita these days. Back in the day, the United Fruit Company was running into trouble in Guatemala. They were setting up shop in Ecuador where things were all right, even for the workers. Conditions were were relatively good compared to to what Ecuadorian, rural Ecuadorian workers were used to. Um, That is, the company kind of had a, you know, almost a Fortis system of of paternalism in, in a sense. That is, they built you know, large plantations with a fairly decent infrastructure, um, housing that was certainly superior to housing that most workers had kind of in rural areas, things like electricity, even, you know, theaters, this, these sort of things. That is a, a fairly typical company town in that sense, um, where workers got reasonably good wages, wages that were generally two to three times sort of the going rate at that time in Ecuador. They usually received food at cost, et cetera. Um, and in exchange, of course, they worked extremely hard, <laughs> um, but at least in that in that way, they look back sort of, many workers anyway, look back at that period quite nostalgically, not because it was particularly great, but because it's a particularly difficult time now in comparison. And what were the things that made it, made it change for uh, the workers and the fruit company? For the most part, in the 1950s and 60s, um, the company, most of the large exports are running into difficulties both with agricultural diseases, which put sort of pressure on the entire enterprise, but then in relation to that, the workers are becoming increasingly organized throughout coastal Ecuador. Um, and so most of the foreign-owned plantations by, you know, the early 60s are having some version of strikes or union activity on their plantations. And by, by 1965, in fact, there are no foreign-owned plantations for the most part until sort of more recently. So you're having increasingly difficulty with disease and then with workers, and then you have a transition there kind of, you know, in the mid-60s to contract farming. That is where foreign companies get out of uh, direct production and turn turn that production over to domestic producers for the most part. Uh, what did the workers want from the United Fruit Company? I mean, what was their goal? At the time of sort of when the workers took over the Hacienda, this was Hacienda Tengel, they took over the Hacienda in 1962. Their main demands, ironically, were to get the company back. Um, the company was sort of pulling out due to problems with agricultural diseases. And as a result, what the company was doing, and it looks much like the way that bananas are produced today, they were saying, okay, we're not going to produce these bananas ourselves. Instead, we will contract out with large capitalists, sort of large Ecuadorian capitalists in the region. The workers didn't want this because the wages were worse, the labor conditions were worse, etc. Um, that is, that Ecuadorians were paying the workers worse than, than the United Fruit Company. 
So what the workers wanted was they wanted either the company to come back or preferably um, if the company was going to leave, they wanted the government to appropriate the hacienda and then turn it over to the workers, which in fact more or less happened in, in the mid-60s. Um, the workers did get a large portion of the hacienda in what in effect was Ecuador's first land reform project um, during that period. In the mid-60s when the unions take over the running of plantations, what happens? Um, now, this is just on one plantation. You, you know, you have on a number of, you know, maybe five to ten large foreign-owned plantations during, during the early 60s, foreign-owned companies are having difficulties with workers. This doesn't mean in each case that they took over the plantation. In the case of, of United Fruits Hacienda Tangel, um, the workers, in fact, do take it over in 1962. The company, in turn, not only pulls out of that plantation, but, in fact, they pull off of they pull out of Ecuador altogether, and they stop producing bananas, and in fact stop exporting bananas from Ecuador until sort of the more recent period. And then each situation kind of differs, but in the case of Hacienda Tengel, the workers have the plantation more or less for about a year, then the Ecuadorian government uh, comes in, and this is sort of throughout Latin America, the time of land reform. And so land reform is beginning in Ecuador during this period, and the Ecuadorian state appropriates the land, delivers some of the hacienda to the workers who in turn try to develop it in a variety of ways, not only banana plantations, but producing sort of basic crops. Even some are returning in during this period to producing cacao. But for a variety of reasons, it's very difficult. They don't have access to capital, credit, all sorts of resources. And by the mid-70s, the cooperatives are, are in trouble and losing the land to a class of, a more highly capitalized class of Ecuadorian capitalists, who in turn turn this land back into banana plantations, and once again are selling the bananas to Chiquita, Dole, and Del Monte. So it's, it's somewhat ironic. The workers, in a sense, take over the plantation, they get the land, and then they lose the land, and once again are working on banana plantations, this time uh, for lower wages and, and under worse working conditions. Why haven't they been able to reband together and, and improve their working conditions? Well, there's, <laughs> there's, a lot, there's a number of factors. Um, most employers contract a large part of their labor force, and, and so that's a way of saying, you know, we're not responsible for this labor force because they're contracting with, you know, a labor boss that in turn is, is theoretically responsible for the workers. They also historically have hired workers kind of on a, quote, temporary basis. That is a series of kind of three-month contracts where, you know, literally you have a worker who maybe has been working on the same plantation for 30 years, but it's classified as a temporary worker because he's continually going through a series of three-month contracts precisely in, in order to avoid being classified as a permanent laborer that is a laborer who, who can form a labor union. Hmm. Um, then the companies also, and that sort of brings you to, into the more recent period, also tend to work through subsidiaries. So you might have one company that owns, say, a hacienda that has maybe two or 3,000 hectares. That hacienda, in turn, will be divided into eight or nine plantations. Each of those plantations will be operated by a separate company. And the reason that they do that is because there's a certain number of workers that you need to have um, in order to form a union. That is, a certain number of workers for each enterprise. Um, and so they get the number of workers sort of small enough, both through the system of sub subsidiaries, but also through the system of fictitious, in effect, in effect, temporary workers as well. So it's very difficult sort of legally for, for workers to get together. And then you have the added pressure of 
haciendas and their owners hire essentially what are armed thugs to to repress workers when they do organize or they immediately immediately fire them um i think today ecuador the labor force in ecuador about one percent of the banana plantation labor force is unionized and that's in contrast to you know something like colombia and panama is closer to 90 percent um and most of the other central american companies are certainly higher but when the number one producer of bananas in the world has such a low level of unionization um, and such low wages, it, it undermines efforts in, in other, other parts of the world to, to organize. When the world looks at the situation in Ecuador, people see something like the Human Rights Watch report that came out uh, this spring, uh-huh. and it, it made a big splash. Uh, certain companies fired the child labor and, and things like that. What is what is what do international attempts to change the situation really do for uh, workers in Ecuador? Um, <laughs> I think it remains to be seen. Um, I think there's certainly, you know, there's certainly potential there. Um, the Human Rights Watch report definitely had a big impact to a certain extent, both in Ecuador and outside of Ecuador. But certainly outside of Ecuador, it heightened kind of awareness of of what was going on within the country. Within Ecuador, it made us, I think, a somewhat smaller splash, but one that wasn't insignificant in that it, it temporarily, at least, and may, you know, perhaps permanently, but I suspect temporarily, scared plantation owners or scared them enough to the point where they ended up firing a lot of, of the children, that is, sort of people, um, people under the age of 14 or within, within Ecuadorian labor law classified as children. Exactly what the impact of that is is unclear, um, in part because a sort of you know, unacceptable as it is to many of us to employ children. Um, it's necessary for many families living in these areas. That is, the wages are so low that mother and a father kind of working on plantations can't possibly support a family, and so it becomes necessary for, for children, you know, generally kind of over the age of 10 um, to start working. And, and in, in certain respects, this is kind of accepted, even though it's certainly not preferable. I mean, would, all Ecuadorians would prefer to have their kids remain in school, um, but there's the necessity of kind of having them go to work. And the difficulty, of course, is that, you know, that sort of report made it difficult sort of on those families in the short term, whether or not, you know, it'll have an impact on the long term and make, you know, ideally bring wages up, um, you know, kind of remains to be seen. The leading presidential candidate in Ecuador's uh, campaign that's coming up in the fall is Alvaro Noboa. Correct. And he owns uh, the biggest banana company in in Ecuador. What kind of uh, thing, what does this say about where Ecuador is is going? (laughs) Um, I I think on the one hand, that's that's part of the reason that workers have have focused on on his plantations is because they're hoping anyway that you know he's not immune to public opinion and that hopefully by organizing on his plantations and exposing kind of all the violations of sort of basic human rights going on um, that he'll be pressured into making changes both on his plantations and hopefully sort of um, throughout the industry um, on the other hand um, Ecuador, you know, it's extremely dependent on on bananas. It still remains a, you know, they're the largest producer in the world. It's the number one agricultural export for Ecuador, and this is a time, you know, of neoliberalism and globalization. And so that essentially means that exports are king. I mean, the idea is, you know, export, 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 and anything that kind of threatens that is something that needs to be dealt with fairly quickly. Um, and so that doesn't bode well, kind of, for attempts to organize by workers. 
um, at the same time, you know, I think there's some reasons anyway to be hopeful. On Naboa's, one of Naboa's plantations, there's been, you know, a lot of violence, uh, it seems mm-hmm. like. Uh, can you describe what's been happening and how people end up getting shot on these plantations? Um, in certain respects, it's sort of, it's reminiscent of what was going on in the, in the 1950s and 60s. It started with sort of a strike of about over a thousand workers. Uh, the company refused to negotiate, and this was Naboa on, on Hacienda Los Alamos, which is several thousand hectares divided up into about eight or nine different plantations, I think. And then, sort of slowly, by about May, you had these group of workers, still numbering over a thousand, um, attempt to unionize. And demand rights that, for the most part, are guaranteed by Ecuadorian labor law. That is, they weren't demanding anything excessive, but in fact, things that they should have already been getting. The company responds in May, that is, response to the attempt to unionize, um, by sending in sort of 400, I think, hooded, armed thugs kind of at night to expulse the workers. And this is going on at the same time, virtually the same time, that the Human Rights Watch report comes out. Um, So you have this confluence of events between sort of labor organizing going on within, and then a renewed interest sort of from the outside of what's going on 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 these plantations. Um, And in that respect, the workers have benefited, I think, from the visibility. Whether or not that, that visibility will be sustained or not is kind of another question. You're listening to Worldview from Chicago Public Radio. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm speaking with Steve Striffler. He is Assistant Professor of Anthropology and Latin American Studies at the University of Arkansas. His book is In the Shadows of State and Capital, The United Fruit Company, Popular Struggle, and Agrarian Restructuring in Ecuador. Is there something wrong with the system right now? Is there a a reason why people who work on banana plantations can't be paid a decent wage, and uh, why doesn't the whole chain of uh, events go more smoothly? It sort of comes maybe from two ends. Um, On the one hand, you have a series of labor laws, et cetera, that make it very difficult for workers themselves to organize and make serious demands for better wages, better working conditions, et cetera. On the other hand, you have a system that is controlled by a handful of multinational corporations with kind of Chiquita, Dole, and Dolmani being, being the leading ones, and certainly Naboa, which uh, uh, brands their bananas through, through the Bonita banana brand. That is, these corporations control the system kind of from top to bottom, and so very little of sort of the banana dollar actually ends up in Ecuador. Um, you know, precise exact what it is, it's usually around 10 to 15 percent. And so even the producers themselves aren't getting a large chunk of, of kind of the profit off of, of the banana. Most of that profit goes, or a good percentage of that profit goes to the exporters, but then also a good percentage of it goes to <laughs> grocery stores. In fact, bananas are one of the most profitable uh, commodities that, that are sold by grocery stores, um, you know, such as Walmart, et cetera. So, I mean, I guess in some sense the solution is to, to have more of, more of the banana dollar staying in, in the producing countries. But that, of course, is... That's a problem with all agricultural commodities. You know, I think for the most part, for example, for coffee, I don't think, uh, I think the percentages, in fact, are under 10% of, you know, if you're drinking a cup of coffee in Starbucks, you know, 2 or 3% of that goes back to, to the producing country, and then, of course, even less goes back to the workers. When you look at the history, like this big sweeping century of history and production in, in Ecuador, how do you tally up what's happening today and and the idea of progress and things always marching on and getting better. It seems like things don't march on and get better. 
Yeah, it would be difficult to say that, that the situation for most workers, most plantation workers within Ecuador is, is better today than it was in the past. Um, certainly, levels of labor organization are lower. If you look at sort of wage comparisons from now and in the past, sort of real wages are, are in fact lower. And, you know, certainly conditions on the plantations, that is sort of living conditions, um, you know, access to simple things like electricity, water, uh, bathrooms, it's hard, also difficult to say that, that um, that's much better. Um, I'm not sure if there is a lot of reason as of yet to sort of be optimistic about where things are going and that, that we're progressing. That was Steve Striffler, currently the Doris Zamuri Stone Chair in Latin American Studies and Professor of Anthropology at the University of New Orleans. I spoke to him in 2002. Alvaro Naboa is currently head of the Naboa Group of Companies and the Naboa Corporation. He unsuccessfully campaigned for the Ecuadorian presidency five times, most recently in 2013. Efforts to organize the banana laborers have backslid. In 2017, the workers at the Naboa-owned Los Alamos plantation requested an inspection. In retaliation, workers were offered a buyout of 20 U.S. dollars to leave the union or were fired. As of 2018, Ecuador is still the top exporter of bananas, accounting for nearly a quarter of exports worldwide. Between now and the fall, we'll be bringing you more stories like this from our 25-year run. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll hear from a pioneer in a field called ethno-computing. He believes that indigenous knowledge mirrors modern algorithms and that everybody can learn from mathematics of colonized people. We hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. We're going to be on Thursday live from Chicago's Botanic Garden in Glencoe. We will be talking about pollinators on Thursday. Yes, bees, but also bats and butterflies, all sorts of other pollinators. That's going to be on Thursday, then on Friday. Friday, we'll be visiting the Botanic Gardens Urban Ag Program. Windy City Harvest will be in North Lawndale for that. So hope you can join us as we get some nature and out times, outside time in uh, here in, during the middle of summer. And we'll see you this week on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.